You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. In this episode, we continue the adventures of Woodrow the Wicked with Chapter 13 of The Moon Shadow. And of course, if you want to know what's going on in this story, make sure you go back and listen to chapters 1 through 12 if you haven't already. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you that you can find more of this sort of storytelling at apweber.com. That's A-P-W-E-B-E-R.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please take the time to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Audible now, so we could really use some reviews there. Now for the recap. Previously, Woodrow found himself and his airship trapped deep underground when an angry angel decided he needed more time to contemplate the boy's fate. On top of that, Hartford has quite literally lost his head, leaving Woodrow alone in the dark. And now, Lies and Half-Truths presents The Moon Shadow, first book of The Adventures of Woodrow the Wicked. Part 3, The Grimble Prince, Chapter 13. After a while, Woodrow sat down. He waited for his eyes to adjust, but they never did. His body ached. His head ached. He lay down, pushing aside slivers of broken wood and a fine layer of soot, where he curled up. He couldn't tell if his eyes were closed or opened. He thought they were closed. He could see his fingers. He wiggled them. Yep, those were his fingers. His eyes weren't closed. But where was the light coming from? He sat up, ignoring the pain of his injuries. Hartford? The stone in Hartford's chest pulsed, brighter than before, casting a beam of light upon the floor. Woodrow could see the silhouettes of the golem's hands and knees. He was bent over, patting the ground, here and there. I think it's over here. Woodrow trundled into the shadows, toward the last place he had seen the head. His foot struck it, and he got behind it and pushed. It made a racket as it rolled. Hartford's hands found the head and lifted it into the upper shadows. Woodrow heard a series of metallic squeaks and a click, and then the glow of Hartford's eyes appeared in the darkness above the stone. Glad you're back, the boy said. We have work to do. First, they went to his father's room, the captain's quarters. If there were necessary items for the work ahead, he'd find them there. There was a storage compartment at the foot of the bed, Woodrow opened it and felt around inside. An oil lamp. He held the item up. Can you help me with this? Hartford reached for the wick and snapped his fingers. Sparks leapt forth. He snapped again, and the wick caught fire, filling the room with an amber light. 
Woodrow turned to close the compartment, but stopped. What's this? He lifted out two items and held them to the light. A gauntlet with glass and metal components and a set of goggles. The fact that they were among his father's effects made Woodrow take note. He promised himself to examine them more closely when he had the time. For now, he had other concerns. He replaced the items where he'd found them, closed and latched the compartment, then stood and held up the lamp. Come on, we're going down to the library. Boy and Golem stepped out of the captain's cabin into the antechamber. To one side was the spiral staircase leading down to the library. Straight ahead was the door to the open deck. Let's have a look out there first. He opened the door and stepped into the outer darkness. The air was still and smelled of damp minerals. He held up the lamp and circled the perimeter of the deck. Everywhere he looked, the lamplight halted against naked blackness. The golem stood in the doorway and watched the boy. The angel had to jam us in, but now it looks like we're in a pretty big cavern. Can't see anything. No matter. He got us in here. There has to be a way out. In the library, Woodrow held the lamp up to the book spines while Hartford watched. Help me look. I need to find something. An instruction manual, maybe. If I can figure out how to fly this thing, we can get the hell out of here before that crazy celestial comes back. Wait, what's this? The boy tapped his finger against the thick spine of a book. The label read, Schematics for Hartford. He dragged it off the shelf. It felt hollow, yet it was heavier than he had expected. He laid the book on a table and opened it to find not pages, but small cylindrical spools of paper tucked into pockets on the inside of the binding. The paper on the spools was dotted with tiny holes. Woodrow picked the first one out and held it up. Do you know what to do with this? He asked the golem. Hartford held out his hand, and Woodrow gave him the spool. The golem's jaw dropped open like it had come unhinged, and he placed the spool inside the revealed gearwork. The paper began to spin, unwinding and rewinding around another spool. Hartford's eyes pulsed, bright and dim. When the paper came to its end, it reversed back onto the original spool. Hartford took it out and handed it to Woodrow. They repeated this process with all the spools in the book. When they were done, Woodrow looked at him. So? What happened? The golem shrugged. Can you fly the ship? The golem shook his head. Well, what can you do? The gears in Hartford's head whirred and clicked as if he were thinking hard. Then his eyes glowed bright with sudden realization and he charged off. Woodrow chased after him. Hartford went straight to the bridge. His giant hands, though they seemed so clumsy before, now moved with a deft purpose. The tips of his fingers glowed red-hot. The hole in the wall, little by little, closed under his ceaseless effort, bending and welding the metal. Well, that's something, Woodrow said, then crossed to the helm and sat. The lamplight glared off the glass, revealing nothing in the darkness beyond. He sat for a while, thinking, but the pain in his ribs and head kept distracting him from his train of thought. His stomach growled. He picked up his lamp and went down to the cargo bay. 
In the ring of orange lamplight, Woodrow got on his hands and knees and began sifting through the debris. There had to be something salvageable. He didn't know how long the angel would be gone, but he had to eat. He found some kernels of burnt grain. He ate some and scooped the rest into a singed burlap bag. Then he went on searching. After a while, he stifled a yawn. A little while later, he yawned some more. What time is it? He looked up to see a pair of eyes twinkling in the darkness just outside the ring of light. Hey, Tim Tim. He mumbled. The great cat skulked closer, sniffing the floor in search of the dried meats she had so lately feasted upon. I think it's mostly gone, but if there is anything for you to eat, I'm sure you'll find it. I'm exhausted. He thought about the bed in the captain's cabin. My room now, I guess. Then he thought about the compartment at the foot of the bed, the items he'd discovered there. What is that stuff for? He yawned again. I'm going to bed, Woodrow said, poking his head onto the bridge. Hartford made no acknowledgement. He was close to finishing his work. It looked almost back to normal. Woodrow suspected Hartford would keep working until the whole ship was restored. Woodrow shuffled his way back to the captain's chamber. He hung his lamp and began to undress. He looked down at himself. Dark blotches surrounded by green rings had appeared all over his chest and sides, each a locus of pain. He decided to ignore them. He glanced at the footlocker where the gauntlet and the goggles were. His curiosity compelled him. He knelt before the locker and opened the lid. He put the goggles on first and looked around the room. Everything had a yellow tint. It was already hard to see by lamplight, so he slid the goggles up onto his brow to examine the gauntlet. He drew the item out and held it in both hands. It was all wrong. Leather and metal, as he would expect, but the metal plates weren't in the right places for a piece of armor. Woodrow rubbed the back of his neck. What's it for? He slid his left hand into the gauntlet. Why the left hand only? He flexed his fingers. The gauntlet had clearly been made for someone bigger, but it fit. He tightened the buckles around his forearm. He held his arm up and admired how the gauntlet looked on it. But what's it for? He yawned, falling backward onto the bed. His eyesight was blurred, and he kept blinking involuntarily. He held his left arm up and looked at it, running the fingertips of his other hand over the gauntlet's contours. Absently, he slid the goggles down over his eyes. He blinked. When he opened his eyes, the gauntlet looked different. He bolted upright and pulled off the goggles. The gauntlet was the same again. He watched it for a long time. Same. His vision blurred. He yawned. Woodrow got up, put the goggles and the gauntlet back in the locker, blew out the light, and tumbled into bed. He dreamt of home, not the burning, blood-bathed rock he had left, but the crisp, dew-soaked, emerald-peaked island he had known his whole life. He found himself in his father's laboratory, and there was his father. Or was it Hartford? He woke in darkness. He lit the lamp and got up. Hartford had moved on from the bridge and was now repairing the rest of the damage the angel had caused. 
Woodrow wandered down to the cargo hold and ate a little. He did a little more cleaning and sorting, then went up to the library. Time passed. He slept again. He awoke rested, but the darkness was beginning to make him feel lethargic. It had quite the opposite effect on Tamberline. The darkness seemed to arouse the great cat. She prowled the ship, stalking each level in turn up and down without rest. Woodrow left her to it and decided to spend more time in the library. He read by lamplight until his head grew heavy and his eyelids sagged. He found nothing that explained the controls of the ship. He went back to the captain's quarters and climbed into bed. He lay there wondering when the angel would return for him and what would become of him when he did. Tomorrow I have to figure out the controls, was the last thought he had before falling asleep. He was on Riley Island, once more in his father's lab. Hartford sat at the workbench, ratcheting together some component for the moonshadow. To one side of the workbench lay the goggles and the gauntlet. What are those? Woodrow heard himself ask. Hartford turned toward him, and his father's face smiled out from behind the helmet. Oh, don't worry about those, son, his father said. I'll be flying the moonshadow for the duration of our journey together. And then he woke, his heart beating double time against the inside of his chest. His eyes fluttered, and he rolled over on his side. I think he's waking up. Woodrow opened his eyes wide in the inky black. He closed them again and tried to lie still. He opened his eyes. He felt warm breath on his ear. It smelt like old eggs and sour milk. Yes, came another voice. I can see that, Cudgelfist. Something about this new voice sounded familiar, but not in any good sort of way. Don't be afraid, kid. We won't hurt you came the familiar voice again. The breath at his ear made a sing-songy whine, and a chorus of high, brittle voices joined in from all directions in the darkness. Shut up, the familiar voice blared. Get away from him, cudgel fist. Go light the lamp. He doesn't have eyes for the darkness like we do. A commotion followed, then a warm yellow glow behind his eyelids. Woodrow kept them closed tight. I know you're awake, kid. Open your eyes. Woodrow held his breath. I could have Cudgelfist cut your eyelids off. Several other voices squealed in amusement. Who are you? Woodrow asked. Open your eyes and see. Woodrow twitched, hesitated, then pushed himself up to sitting. He turned to face the direction of the voice and opened his eyes. You. Me. I saw you that night with... Woodrow looked around. His stomach turned. Oh, no. It was worse than he had imagined. They were all around him, sitting, hanging, standing, fidgeting, grimbles. They surrounded his bed, all short and squatty and crooked and gray-skinned and pointy-nosed and black-eyed and jagged-toothed and hairy and bald and ugly. Their stench grew stronger in the room, like sulfur and dead fish and old socks. He marveled that it hadn't woken him in his sleep. Y you 
must be the... Woodrow's voice shook. The Grimble Prince. Yes. The Grimble Prince. Grimbles were real. This he knew all too well. But the Grimble Prince. Woodrow had believed him to be nothing more than a story to scare kids and ward off mischievous behavior. He couldn't quite discern the age of the Grimble Prince. He looked somewhere between a boy and a man with his smooth cheeks and small frame. He was dressed fashionably, befitting his noble title, complete with a cravat, but his whole ensemble was marred with stains and tears. The level of wear, evident in his clothing, made no impact on the gravity of his station, a prince, as it were. Instead, he seemed to wear the rips and dirt as badges of his office. The Lord of Grimbles could not be clean, after all. My name is Milo, said the prince. And you are the infamous Woodrow. We've met. Before all this unpleasantness, you were not so infamous then. Woodrow swallowed. Don't worry, kiddo, said Milo. Infamy is nothing to be ashamed of. Ask any of my subjects here. A grated chorus of titters and laughs erupted from the grimbles around him. Woodrow wondered where Tamberline was. Milo? The name struck him as familiar all of a sudden. Milo grinned a phalanx of jagged yellow teeth. You remember? Woodrow nodded his brow. Maybe. I know you're Sir Raymond's little brother. Milo frowned. The youngest, yes. And I remember you. You were always crying, as I recall. It all came back to Woodrow now. Milo was just a few years older than him. He used to play with Woodrow some time ago. Woodrow had admired the older boy, but there was something else, something dark about the memory. Shame, fear. You picked on me. Just games. We had fun. You had fun. It could have been fun for you, but you were too busy crying. I don't want to talk about that. The Grimble Prince sighed. Fine. Get up. Walk with me upstairs to that clever little greenhouse. Milo stood, a pistol hung in a holster on his hip, its twin hammers bent back at the ready. From the other hip dangled a slender dagger. The Grimbles were all armed as well, barbed clubs, short spears, and crooked, hammer-pocked blades. Cudgelfest, come! The rest of you mind your posts. There's a dangerous construct about. Do not disturb him from his work, lest he pound you all into jam. The Grimbles stared at Woodrow as he swung his bare feet over the side of the bed and placed them on the cold ground. He padded, shirtless, after Milo, who was already out the door. Cudgelfist waited for Woodrow to exit the room before following behind. Milo carried the lamp up the stairs into the greenhouse, where its light glared off the glass, mirroring the room on all sides and doubling the fruitless greenery. Woodrow gasped as he came into the room. Tam-Tam! On the floor, bound and trussed in cord, lay the great cat, 
She looked sidelong at Woodrow, the way an animal does when it is wounded and doesn't understand why. Milo laughed. <laughs> she was sleeping. Grimbles can be remarkably quiet when they want to be. Good thing, too. That beast might have been the death of me. But don't worry. I did much worse things to cats when I was a child. Boys will be boys. Cudgelfist snickered at this. Milo drew his pistol and held it at his side. I'm not interested in your pet, Woodrow. I've been looking for you. Milo stepped to Woodrow and caressed his face. His nails were overgrown yellow talons. Woodrow pulled away and felt the sharp tips draw pink lines across his cheeks. Why? To kill me? To take my ship? Milo made a vague gesture. Sure, that, at my family's request. But I knew my brother Monroy would get to you first, and I thought if the boy survives that encounter, wouldn't that be something? And here you are, holed up in what is, without question, my realm, the realm of the Grimble Prince. It's as if. You came looking for me. Why would I come looking for you? Milo smiled his jagged smile. Because you're a wicked boy, just like me. Let me tell you a story. He began to pace, his hands behind his back, still holding the pistol. Once upon a time, there was a bad little boy from... An ambitious, aristocratic family. He heard a story about Grimbles kidnapping children and raising them as their own deep underground, in wells and in mines and in all the other dark places abandoned by human civilization. And from these stolen children, the Grimble Prince would be chosen to rule in the dark places. So... The bad little boy from an ambitious, aristocratic family left home and went looking for these little monsters, these grimbles. And when he found them, he joined them. And before long, he ruled them. Milo stopped pacing and set his dark eyes on Woodrow. See where I'm going with this? You're the Grimble Prince. Woodrow said. Well, obviously, that's established. Maybe I should kill him right now, Cudgelfist. Do you not see the parallels? Wicked boys seeking out their destinies in the dark. Do I have to spell it out to you? I'm not seeking out anything, insisted Woodrow. You try to kill my brother, steal his ship, and run off to my doorstep. Not to mention no one has heard hide nor hair from my other brother, Monroy, whom I am certain you handily dealt with. You're trying to impress me. Admit it. Why else would you have wreaked so much havoc before leaving Riley Island? I didn't. You did. Me? Why, no. That was never the plan. Do you mean to tell me you didn't know the... Plan. 
I should put a bullet in his brain this instant, Kajafest. Is he really this daft? I don't care if you shoot me, you son of a bitch. And I figured out your stupid plan a long time ago. Don't think you can provoke me by disparaging my mother. I know just how horrible she is. But if you're so clever, tell me, what have you figured out? And let me remind you, if you are not as smart as I hoped you were, I shall tear your tongue out through your throat. Woodrow rubbed the back of his neck. Your family murdered Lord Edgar, and you covered it up by making it look like a Grimble attack. Milo grinned. My family has always had a flair for court intrigue. But what you left out is your part in the whole affair. The reason it all went so beautifully awry. Had no part in it. If I could have stopped your brother from... You did stop my brother. And it was wonderful. Genius. He was supposed to play hero. To swoop in on his magic airship and save the day. But you stopped him and allowed my horde free reign to pillage until Monroy showed up with his sailors and ruined all the fun. The one member of my family who was unaware of the plot. Now Raymond is the named ruler of a charred and ravaged island. Milo's voice cracked and crumbled into a fit of laughter. Cudgelfist joined in with his own wild cackling. Woodrow dug his fingernails into his palms and looked away. Milo was right. It was all his fault. He swallowed down the urge to cry. All because of you, the Grimble Prince went on, wiping his eyes and composing himself. I can't tell you. How refreshing it is to see that kind of innovation. Every day I am surrounded by these uninspired pea-brained maggots. He waved his pistol at Cudgelfist, who now had a finger two knuckles deep in his left nostril. The Grimble just kept rooting around in there, too preoccupied to even notice Milo's insult. See what I mean? Exhibit A, right there! Which brings me to my proposition. I could use someone like you on my staff. What do you say? Woodrow studied the floor. Several seconds passed. He made no reply. Milo sighed. Killing you would be such a waste. Still, Woodrow said nothing. He wondered what it would feel like to be shot, or perhaps Milo would stab him. Would it be better to blink out of existence in an instant or fade out with the seeping of his blood? But before Woodrow could resolve the dilemma, the Grimble Prince leveled his pistol and fired. Cudgelfist's blood against the glass was so dark it looked almost black. The bullet had passed through the Grimble's hand and into his face, shattering both in the process. For several seconds, Cudgelfist just stood there, trying to pick a nose that wasn't there with his mangled hand. Then his body crumbled into a heap on the floor. Look, a position has just opened up! <laughs> Milo managed to squeak out before erupting into laughter. 
He bent forward with one hand on his knee and pointed at the Grimble's corpse. Ah, did you see that? He wheezed and went on laughing and laughing. Woodrow watched the dark blood pool around Cudgelfist. His face felt numb. How many lives had Cudgelfist ended? Hundreds, maybe. But Woodrow didn't feel vindicated. It was all part and parcel of the same senseless horror. He didn't feel sorry for the dead Grimble either. He just felt numb. <sighs> Goodness, Milo sighed. What fun we're having already. I think this is going to be a, a great fit. I really do. Welcome to the team. Believe me, you are going to enjoy this much more than running around on this gaudy airship. I mean, it's a wonderful ship to be sure, but it's not worth dying for. We'll leave it for my brother. Woodrow raised his eyes to meet Milo's. He heard himself speaking in a flat, distant voice. My father thought it was. What? The ship. My father died trying to keep it from falling into Raymond's hands. Milo fingered his pistol's trigger. Which makes him what? Noble? Heroic? No. It just makes him dead. And dead is the one thing you don't want to be, Woodrow. Milo gave the boy a conciliatory smile. Responsibility, principles, loyalty, all that is fine for the herd. But you are smart, and the smart man knows all that nonsense is so much detritus when the knife is at your throat, and the knife is Always at your throat, Woodrow. Always. Woodrow let his eyes fall again, but Milo raised the boy's chin with the tip of a talon. Understand what I'm offering you, said the Grimble Prince. There has always been a Grimble Prince, but there has never been a Grimble King. I will be the first, and you will be my prince. Together, we will bless the world with terror. Woodrow shrugged away. His eyes landed on Cudgelfist's worn blade. It was ugly and crooked with years of misuse, but it looked sharp, sharp enough to pass through Milo's throat with a good swing. He bent down. I guess that makes this mine he said, taking hold of the blade's handle. The second he grasped the sword, he felt a ring of cold metal against his temple. Out of the corner of his eye, he could see Milo smiling down at him from behind the pistol. Everything is yours, if you can take it, said the prince in a portentous whisper. Now, shall we go? Woodrow swallowed. Where to? My palace, of course. The fortress of the Grimble Prince. <clears throat> the Grimble King. He waved his pistol at the door. You first.
Thanks for listening to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by A.P. Weber and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme was provided by Josiah Martins. Original music by Mackenzie Stubbard. As always, consider liking, sharing, or reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it. Tell a friend. You can also support me, A.P. Weber, on Patreon. In any case, please join us again next time for more Lies and Half-Truths.